HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We do more varieties and flavors of cheese than anywhere else on earth. By pushing the boundaries of what cheese can and should be, find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Hey, hey, welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. It's our 14th, 15th year now, and we're out in uh, Deep Ellum in Waltham, just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. It's a legendary bar that's been reborn, and I'm here with uh, the owner, Max Toste, and with another good friend, Exhibit A Brewing's Matthew Steinberg. So you guys, just give a quick intro. Let, let the audience hear your voice. Hey, this is Max Toste, one of the owners of Deep Ellum, and... Here I am. Hello. Hi, Matthew Steinberg here, co-founder, head brewer of Exhibit A Brewing. Uh, psyched to be here with Max and Jimmy. So there's nothing like coming to a good beer bar. We, we, we did a show about Novari Res and their amazing uh, beer list for Craft Malt Conference last year. And, you know, I heard that that Max had reopened Deep Elm. So I wanted to come out. I'd never been to the original Deep Elm. There's a myth about it. We, we're, I really care about beer bars and good beer lists too so max just tell us the old story of, of you know deep Ellum and that you know a matthew here from a long time ago this is a great little synergy yeah matt and i met when my partner aaron and i were uh running uh, bukowski tavern over in cambridge and we had the pleasure to pour some of his beers when he was working for offshore brewing and then we opened deep Ellum. Uh, January of 2007. Uh, And, you know, it was pretty beer-centric, but we really wanted to just open an awesome neighborhood bar that served the awesomest stuff we could find. So the the best lagers from Germany, the best local craft beers, the best cask from England, the best spirits from wherever their best spirits are made, you know. Um, That was kind of the idea making good cocktails, making good food, and having a cool bar. 
Um, the beer bar scene at the time was a little snooty, in my opinion, and it was a little kind of, um, I don't know, it was, a, it was like a little boys clubbish, and I didn't really enjoy it that much, so I wanted to do something that was uh, less full of itself. Uh, and also, like, slightly irreverent, because that's kind of our personality. But, yeah, we were, we were excited to reopen Deep Ellum because we kind of got forced into closing because of COVID and occupancy restrictions and a bunch of BS. Basically, bars didn't flourish uh, in the lockdown, as you can probably imagine. Um, <clears throat> anyway, but we had an opportunity in the space here on Moody Street to kind of do Deep Ellum 2.0. So that's what we're doing. That's great. It's great to come out. Um... I've never been out in Waltham, Massachusetts. I know across the street is the La Castellana, the Mexican bakery, where I got some rolls that I'm going to share with you afterwards. So right away, I feel like welcome to this kind of reborn city. And Matt, you, you go way back, too. So just tell us about when you first met Max and uh, some of the things you've done before you had Exhibit A brewing. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of from the area. My father lived here in, in Newton, actually. And then after college, I lived two blocks from here and spent a lot of time on Newbury, uh, on, on Moody Street. Um, and, uh, you know, that's like 90s. And uh, so it's nice to be back in Waltham, for sure. Um, it's changed a lot <laughs> in 20 years. Um, yeah, when I was the brewer at Offshore, I kind of split my time between being on the island and making beer and coming off the island to represent the brand. Um, and I was really pleased to be able to do that at bars like Deep Ellum in, uh, was that Brighton or Alston? It was, it was Alston. Um, and, uh, you know, really loved that place, was there very early on. Um, and uh, before that, Bukowski was a big uh, customer of ours, the, the three, I think two or three locations at the time. And uh, so these guys were always great to us and supported the brands that, that I've brewed over the years. Um, when I learned that Max was reopening this, and I actually learned that in Maine because he and I ran into each other in Portland at... Uh, Crispy guy, <laughs> crispy guy. I was with my stepdaughter because she was going to school there, and uh, and I see Max in the mirror, you know, and and, and we enjoyed a moment, um, and that's when you were like, hey, we're about to move on to Moody Street, um, so it's great to be back. We had a cask night here what a month ago, a month ago or so, yeah. Uh, that was my first visit here um, since they opened, reopened. So uh, yeah, it, it, it's a great in, it's a great intro, but it, it's a special place. It feels like it's been here forever, Max. It's a cool space. It's it's been a bar for, I mean, like generations, which is cool. And and not to get too like in the weeds, but the the back bar here is uh, like original post war post World War II, um, sort of like kind of a cookie cutter bar design that you see around from like the late forties. And the original the Deep Ellum bar that we had in Alston. It was built by a couple of contractors who really wanted to build a bar, but they didn't really know how to run a bar. That's kind of how we got into that space. But they modeled their back bar after this era bar. And this is actually an original version of what that bar was made to look like. So it's this weird sort of like very, uh, I don't even know, it's like meta kind of like weird coincidence. So the look of the place is kind of eerily similar to the old spot. Uh, it's also been a bar since the late 40s, and it's only been like four different uh, uh, versions of a bar. So it was a, it was a place called Lucky's. It was a place called Frank's. 
let's see, it was the a link, the Lincoln, and then the gaff. I think that's right. Anyway, the and the guys who had the gaff were, were friends of mine, uh, Mike and Steve, and they uh, were looking to move on and focus on their place in Beverly that they have. So we got in here, and you know, there's ceiling fans that are the same ceiling fans that we had at Deep Ellum because Mike liked them and asked me where I got them. And so years ago, I sent him a link to where to find them. So when I, my business partner and I walked in here to check the place out because we knew it was coming available, we looked around and we we're like, Jesus, this looks just like Deep Ellum. That's kind of creepy. It's like they built it for you. It's wild. So that was kind of fun. And that, that really kind of sent it home to what we wanted to do. And I like Waltham as a neighborhood. And it's fun to spend time here and get to know people. I lived in Brighton for a long time. And um, my ex-wife and I, we would come out to this neighborhood when it was kind of full of Italian delis. And it's always, it feels like this town has always been transitioning. Like since the mid nineties to now, it's like everybody says, oh, it was so different. And it's like, I don't know what it was ever like. It just kind of feels like it's always changing, which is kind of interesting. But it's it's got a, like a real blue collar, honest person kind of uh, aura about it that I really enjoy. Uh, it doesn't have like, you know, it, it has a character to this neighborhood that I think is hard to find in Metro Boston nowadays because there's so much rapid change in technology and like the way the city looks. This place looks like Waltham to me, and it feels pretty cozy and neighborhoody. You know, Max, I, I got off on Moody Street, and I felt like I was in a city. <laughs> there, there was storefronts, there was a bakery, there was a cafe, there was a restaurant, there's, there's a hotel and like an Indian Middle Eastern uh, market. And um, to me, that's what a city is. But let, let's talk about what you know, why, why you go out. What, what, why are there cities? But why are there on-premise places and why is hospitality important? You know, you hear about, you know, the, the changes everyone went through with COVID, but there's nothing like going out to a really great place with hospitality. And, you know, and, and tell us about your magic, because I always thought of Deep Ellum originally as a beer bar, but it's, it's not just a beer bar. Well, like I was saying, I mean, we wanted to open a bar that was an awesome neighborhood bar. And it just so happened that we were really into beer and that was a big part of our background. But we were really interested in cocktails and the sort of, you know, the, the cocktail scene, which, you know, in 2005 and 2006 in Boston, it was very much, you know, in its beginnings. There was only a handful of spots where you could get a proper drink. And all the bartenders who were interested in that sort of thing, we all knew each other. So it's a pretty small scene and even... Even like from New York, we would go. We would go down to New York, and we knew those guys down there, and you know Misty Kalfakin and John Gertson, and like the sort of luminaries of the Boston scene, and Brother Cleve and Pat Sullivan at the B side. Like everybody kind of knew each other. It wasn't a. It, it, it but it also was pretty uncommon to have an awesome bar that had awesome stuff, and I thought Deep Ellum was pretty unique because it had cocktails and good beer. And good food, but it also, you know, we sold, you know, high life and shots of whiskey and played rock and roll music. So it didn't really have, um, it didn't really have any status attached to the quality. It was like about the hang and, and that for me was like a big part of the style of hospitality. It was very welcoming. You didn't have to be part of a club or like know what was cool or, you know 
be able to expound about your knowledge of beer to hang and enjoy the place. You could, if you didn't give a shit, you could just have a high life and we could talk about the Red Sox. Like it was cool. And that was kind of what we wanted. Um, and it's funny now because now neighborhood bars, like everybody pours craft beer and you're expected to have a cocktail menu, which is cool. And I'm glad that that's the way it is, but I don't, I still don't think a lot of people do it very well. So it's nice to still try to do it at a high level in a neighborhood setting that is casual and, and chill. And I know you have some great relationships, you know, with, with brewers and, and distributors. Um, what stands out for you on this menu? I, I was impressed to see you sacred profane their, their, their dark Czech lager on. Well, much like the original Deep Ellum, I like to buy and sell things that are maybe a little bit different, um, but not for the sake of being different. So, you know, for instance, we sell Guinness because I don't think a lot of people pour very good Guinness. I never really sold Guinness at Deep Ellum because it was pretty ubiquitous in Boston 15 years ago. But nowadays, to find a properly poured Guinness is kind of rare. So I get a kick out of serving a good Guinness. So even though it's not crafty and, you know, the beer nerds might think it's pedestrian. I don't care. It's delicious. And on the flip side of that, you know, we'll sell Cantillon when we can get it. Or, you know, Matt McBrew's a great porter that hap just happens to be local. But just because it's local, I don't care that it's local. It has to be really good. You want it to be good. It has to be good. Yeah. So, you know, and I like, you know, I think loggers are, have, have been having a moment again, but I don't think people really understand them that well. So for me, like pouring really good European loggers is a big part of our program. Um, pouring properly soured things, things that are soured in a barrel as opposed to kettle sours. Um, kind of throwing a little love to some West Coast styles clear beer that's bitter and hoppy and just doing stuff a little bit different and it's also we only have 14 draft lines because there aren't more than 14 beers that i want to serve people at a time We're keeping them rotating often enough that is back at the deep Ellum, we had 20 to 28 draft lines but there was a whole lot more european stuff we used to be able to get and there was a whole lot more west coast stuff that we used to be able to get as opposed to just having a lot of stuff that's very similar. It's hard, it's hard to put together 20 draft lines that are actually different from each other. You, you know, when, when I met you a couple years ago at, at Lone Star Taco in Cambridge, you were talking about opening a place up in Portland at Lenora, and you were talking about having a, a much tighter draft list then. Yeah. Our, we have a, our sister restaurant, Lenora in Portland, has a tight draft list. It has a small draft list for Portland, Maine, because there's a... It's a pretty beer beer centric town, and um, I think we have eleven we have eleven drafts there. One of our drafts is nitro cold brew coffee that we make, but the other eleven are um, lagers mostly, and a couple of uh, IPAs. You know, I saw you last year. One one thing that's really cool in Boston for beer is the Nearx, the the Cast Festival, and and I saw you there with with, with a couple of all star brewers, uh, including Will from from Cambridge. I noticed you have some Cambridge brewing on tap. I do have, uh, yeah, we, we rotate. Like I said, I love to pour local beers that are good. Like I mentioned Matt's Porter. Matt brews a great Kolsch that we like. We had his cask on special for that event a month ago. And then, uh, you know, Will Myers is like, it's funny because people outside of Massachusetts think he's way more famous 
than people inside of Massachusetts because you're like, oh, the guy from CBC, it's Will, right? Like that guy's like a bad motherfucker. I mean, he is like world famous dude who just happens to be here. So I'm always happy to to work with him if I can. And that Flower Child uh, IPA that he brews is delicious. And it's so like such a West Coast style that it's fun to have that here. Uh, so yeah, we just tapped that just a couple days ago, actually. But we, we again, there's a heavy rotation. There's not a lot of stuff that lives lives on the lines. So uh, there is a pretty heavy rotation, which is why I like a, a tighter list. It keeps things moving quicker. So we'll have like one and done. Although there are like Sacred Profane up in Biddeford, um, their beers are pretty rad. And they're especially they're dark. Uh, it's just just hard to it's a it's hard to find something that tastes like that and it's the customers really respond to it so i just keep pouring it until they run out yeah no that that's a great intro to what you're doing here and matt matt the whole time is smiling um we i got to go out to exhibit a brewing two years ago in framingham that that was a fun trip for me next door with, with the pupusa restaurant and um but it's great to see you again but I mean, the whole time you're smiling everything he talks about um you know, does it resonates with you? It does. I mean, I've been a been a uh, a patron of his hospitality programs for a long time, and what Max is saying is not only true, but it is clear for so many years that it's come from a really authentic place. My first visit to Deep Ellum, immediately, like like the the beers that I drank were were great. I can't tell you what they were, but I can tell you the food I ate. Um, you called it Grubbins. And I've mentioned it before, which was like basically fish and potatoes and kind of this, I don't know what it was, but it was incredible. And, but what it made me feel like when I was in there is I felt that bars that are trying to do this aren't actually hitting the mark right now. There, there's a bunch of places that have decent beer and good food or whatever and trying to do the thing, but, um, but there was just something different. And just listening to Max talk about it in the, in those terms, which I've, had this conversation before on different occasions, but um, it's just nice. feels good. Max, what's Grubbins? So Grubbins were something from our, our opening menu that were this kind of variation on fish and chips where you, you put the fish in between thin slices of potato. Um, when they're good, they're really good. They're really hard to make consistently, so we stopped doing it because there you had about a 50-50 chance of them being great or being kind of kind of uh had it once it was great <laughs> stodgy stodgy as the brits might say uh so we don't do this anymore but um and i think i think the idea like i was talking to one of our staff the other day about like how you know american whiskey prices get all get all messed up because people gouge and go crazy and we were talking about like why would you do that and because he and i are really into american whiskey among other things and it, it all kind of boils down to being a lover of the thing, right? And it just so happens, like, I really love beer. I really love wine. I really love cocktails. I really love agave. I'm really into gin. I love American whiskey. I kind of like the best of... My buddy Ben says he likes the top 5% of everything. So I really like the good stuff. And I get excited about it. So our whole thing is kind of just based on, like, we want to offer what we think is awesome and share it. And that's where it comes from. And it trickles down to a generally positive attitude, which we try to express to the, to our guests. So 
it is, you know, not to sound corny, but it's pretty genuine. But we're like excited about what we're selling and we're offering. So it's not so much about like, oh, you're so lucky to have this. It's more like we're so excited to share this with you. So it has a different kind of feel. And I only kind of, this wasn't intentional, but I've kind of figured it out over the years that that's sort of where it comes from. Um, it wasn't a concept. It was just like, I genuinely like this stuff a lot. <laughs> and I get real excited about it. Well, I like it here. I'm, we're sitting in the table by the window. I'm looking at the bar. I like the layout. And there's a, there's a great mirror at the back that, that I can see the street from. And I really feel at home here. Matt, so like uh, we're at a beer bar with a great beer list. You brought some beers. How, how would you sell this this bar owner and what you brought? Oh, I'm here for a sale. And you can ta- you can taste us too. How about that? Um, I, well, I mean, the beer we're drinking right now it's uh, one of our right to farm uh, uh, varietals, I guess, if you would. Um, so, right to farm is our lager series. Uh, this is kind of a dark, strong German inspired beer, you know, Doppelbach or Bach beer. Um, it's a dark lager, but we call it Northeast dark lager. It's all Valley malts and combination of Munichs and Viennas and Pilsner Malt. Um, pretty special beer, really, for us as a brewery. Um, it's, I think it's about eight, eight and a half or eight point seven percent. Yeah, it drinks pretty smooth. It's, uh, it's been in the can two, three months at this point, but it's, uh, it's tasting great. I'm really enjoying it. Um, the, the beauty of a beer like this for us as a brewery is it allows our brewers and I, you know Kyle uh, Warren, who's our production manager. Uh, had a lot to do with how this beer came out this year and helped to develop uh, sort of the 2.0 version of it. We did we did a Doppelbach called Educator a couple of years ago under uh, actually Colleen, who's at uh, Colleen Rankin, who formerly of Arbury and also uh, uh, Lamplighter, uh, formulated the first version of that. Um, and the whole idea was like, let's focus on local ingredients to make, uh, you know, European-inspired beers, um, which really isn't something that, you know, what we've done in this country is just made, you know, like this is a, a an English mild or a British porter or a German lager using those ingredients, trying to use, you know, yeasts that are appropriate for that style, malts that are grown in those regions. Um, it's all, it's great. It's fun. But I've got access to grain here in Massachusetts. It's grown in New York and grown in Maine and grown in Connecticut. Um, some in New Hampshire right now as well in Massachusetts, of course. Um, so it's just, it was a fun way for us to like take lager home a little bit and not just kind of rely on the European traditions, but sort of look at them with, you know, certainly some respect and, and, uh, you know, inspiration, um, tribute, if you will. You you know, I'm a fan of, of the local craft malt movement. And my, my new mission is, is to have you guys, because the, the, the brewers and, and the maltsters, you're very focused on what you're doing. But I want you guys to sell me on why craft malt is sexy. Uh, I mean, I don't know that it is. <laughs> um, it tastes good. And, uh, you know, I've, I, from the beginning of Exhibit A and even before I opened Exhibit A, I, I was trying to use local malts in our beers to see what they would do for the beers, right? And so luckily I've been with... You know, I've been buying from Valley Malt the entire time they've been open. So I've seen the whole kind of trajectory of their uh, quality and consistency and things like that as we've as we've grown both as brewers and, and as they've grown as a maltster. Um, their new system is uh, amazing. Their, their facility is incredible. I've been there 
I don't know, 30 or 40 times at this point. I'm there all the time over the last couple of years, um, just there the other day. And the thing that I've noticed the most about their product is that it's, it's made with intention. It's their, their quality set is it, their quality plan is really set in stone. They know what they're looking to do with their grain. They've built equipment that allows them to do that. Um, and they don't really take any, you know, they, this is what we do and they're really proud of it. And it's, it's been exciting to watch. Um, it's not the end all. There's other things we want to use, right? I want to support other monsters, whether they're local or just great quality too. And, you know, Max, you mentioned before, like, uh, you know, we, we like that beer. It happened to be local. Um, it's not the decision maker. The fact that it's local is nice. It's a bonus. It's good for free. Um, but it's not actually why we bought, buy their malt. We buy their malt because of the high quality of it. Um, the fact that they're nearby and I get my grain on an electric van, all those things are super cool and, and like add to the, uh, to our desire to continue to grow with them as a, as a customer and also like, you know, developing grains. Like we don't, I can't call Wireman and be like, Hey, I really dig your pale malt, but could you do this instead? You know, like they're not doing that. They, no monsters do that. You know, um, Valley Malt did that with us. We developed a grain called Golden Valley Pale with them um, and other brewers that were involved with the desire to have a, uh, you know, a, a, a malt that one would say, hey, like I used to, I, I used to use a lot of Maris Otter. Like I'd love to use a grain like that that's grown locally. So we found a seed that we felt they, I should say, they found a seed that they felt could grow consistently, provide a good livelihood for the farmer and the monster and provide the ingredient that the brewery needs to do those things. Um, so yeah, the, I mean, the, the, that, to just go back to that local thing is like, it has to be better whether it's local or not. That's the choice, you know, um, whether it's the beer or a piece of meat that you buy from a local cattle farmer versus a commodity, you know, buy it from Cisco. If the meat isn't as good, it doesn't matter that it came from down the street. Max, you, you, you want to? You're, I know you're a great taster, and um, let's talk about this beer. Okay. Uh, I, I I got I actually finished my sample and I had to pour another sample for myself, which which usually is a good cheers. That's a good taste. That's a good sign that I liked it because I drank mine, so I poured some more. Um, I mean, kind of what Matt was saying about the. Brewing to style, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but you know, you're brewing to brewing to an established style, but using different ingredients. Um, I like that. I like, I like when this is going to sound really weird, but I like it when you know craft brewers really kind of know what the hell they're talking about when it comes to like established styles, and it doesn't just come out of thin air because there's like centuries and centuries of incredible like development and when when brewers are just like oh i'm gonna do my own thing because they think they're smarter than everybody else i i rarely like what they make and because it just tastes like homebrew most of the time but uh when i taste this beer like it reminds me of the style you know it reminds me of a doppelbach it has certain characteristics there's like that tiny bit of like treacle licorice in the nose like 
if you asked me what it was, I'd probably say, oh, is, is it like a strong Baltic lager or an imperial lager or a Doppelbach? You know, like it, it's something in that family, but it has like something different going on, which isn't an error or a flaw. It's more about terroir. It's like it's made from different stuff than like than what I've tasted coming out of Germany and Eastern Europe. And it's made, it tastes, it's, it smells to me like it's different yeast strain. Like it doesn't have, it doesn't have that sulfuriness that you get from some of those like Eastern European and German, German lockers. Um, so it, it tastes like here. It doesn't taste like, you know, but it doesn't, it's, it also isn't like an imposter. Like it, it, it delivers on what it's saying it is, but it's bringing something to the table that isn't just uh, a clone. Like, it's cool. I, I like it. And it, it, you can geek out You can geek out on it if you want. We can talk about that. But also, it's delicious. Like I said, like, I finished my sample. I was going to say, I like the fact that you drank the first bit without even thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And on, it was just a physical thing. Like, you didn't involve your brain that much, which is I kind did. of desirable. You didn't. Yeah, that's a desirable way to consume sometimes. Well, I smelled it, and I smelled, it smelled good. <laughs> and I tasted it, and it tasted good. I, I, really good. You know, good. like, I'm not a McDonald's hamburger kind of guy. Like, I don't just shut my brain off and eat things. But, but it's, <laughs> it's delicious. And also, like, if I had – what's fun, too, is, like, I didn't look at the can to see that the ABV is 8.7. And if I had thought about it being 8.7, I would have been like, ooh, that's going to be strong. But the, the alcohol is so gentle – and it's so um, uh, so integrated that it doesn't come off hot in the nose at all. It doesn't come off spicy on the palate. Um, the, resi- the residual sugar and maltiness of, or I should say the residual maltiness you get or the maltiness in the palate like covers over like the spice of the alcohol. So it's like, I would guess it was 7%, 6, 8, something like that. So... Um, is this decocted? No, it's a single infusion. Asian, uh, is there like, um, what's that malt that like acidic? Um, there's well, I, well, I was talking about melanoid malt earlier. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, there's dark Munich, okay, um, which doesn't isn't really melanoid malt at all, but yeah. um, but it is that darker German, you know, inspired yeah. malt, not German. Yeah, <laughs> the maltiness is cool. I mean, it it's, is, it's and that's something that we, you know, I love the idea of highlighting ingredient mm-hmm. you know i mean process is important this beer got i don't know six or eight i think eight weeks lagering it was it was in the tank for a while it was six six full weeks at 32 or something oh, crazy cool. like that you know you know it, it's really great and I, I was talking to someone yesterday about hops and for the local argument they were saying it's, it's one thing to do one beer a year and 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 feature the local thing but the, it, they'd rather push to have Brewers and 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 bar owners carrying and and featuring local products, you know, th- throughout the year and all that you do. And I know that's what y- you do, Matt. I'm not sure what I'm trying to say. I just wanted to round it out. I was listening to Matt talk before. You asked what makes like local malt sexy, <laughs> and that's kind of a funny way to say that something is exciting. Um, but I think I think like the idea of you know, like working with Valley Mall and working with a good maltster and help, you know, you mutually benefit from developing and, and collaborating and pushing for higher standards. 
And it all creates an ecosystem that's really important because, you know, we think about like, you know, local is best and, and all that sort of thing. And, and it's great. I do like local. I like supporting local business. I like supporting local industries of all manner. But there's also like, I mean, we have a global community that's actually pretty small. There's not a lot of people doing things at a really high level. So if you're working with small producers all over the, the globe to create high quality products, there's going to create a, a, a different, another ecosystem where you're, you're supporting quality and you're supporting independent thought and you're supporting, you know, these businesses that, that intermingle. Hello, police, police ambulance. So it just so happens that like, you know, we're talking about a Massachusetts Maltster. They're Massachusetts, right? Yes. Yeah. Talking about a Massachusetts Maltster, but if there's, you know, uh, somebody making cask ale in, you know, I don't know, Sheffield, England, and they want to like mess around with some different malts and they buy from Mal Valley Maltsters and then that beer gets shipped over here and we enjoy it. It's, I don't know. There's like, it's a, it's a small community. It's not like this big, like industrial operation. I mean, we're making small, or Matt's making small amounts of beer. I'm selling beer for the most part and cocktails and, and the brands we use in general that are pretty small production relative to, you know, industrial production. So this ecosystem of like pushing like high quality um, in, in uh, products with integrity, you know, has led, led to a lot of really good relationships that we've continued over the years because they're mutually beneficial. And we're like all kind of in it in this enthusiastic kind of way. So I get excited about what Matt's doing and what Valley Monster's doing just as much as what, you know, like some of the agave production in Oaxaca and like these connections we've made with people, you know, all over the country doing cool things. And, you know, we buy our sausage from a sausage maker in Peabody that I actually have to pick up and drive here because they don't have delivery. Um, so that's like pretty small. Market. You know, that's why I came. I saw a picture of the Carl's sausage, uh, your bratwurst on your menu. And I said, I, I got to come to Deep Ellen. That's great stuff. Yeah, that's good stuff. I love those guys. You have to pick that up. Every two weeks, yeah. We freeze half of it and we cook off half of it. It's the Ross Rotwurst. It's the one for grilling. I miss the They're days great. Of, uh, of bartender or bar owners and bar beer buyers coming to the brewery to pick up. Yeah. Moxley. Moxley used to pick up oh, yeah. all the time, yeah, for all the bars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember driving out to Belchertown a few times with a with a van, picking up stuff from the Shelton Brothers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was slightly gray market because they didn't really have distribution in Boston, but I wanted to pour those those Mars lagers, man, and uh, Phantom and all that shit. Yeah, yeah. There's some great memories that, that run right right through this crew here. Um, you, what should we taste next after the 8% dark lager? So this is, uh, we're going to need you to come in on Saturday. We just lovingly call it Saturday. Here, I'll let you pour your own. Uh, Here, let, let Matt uh, pour that. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin, the state of cheese, makes half of the nation's specialty cheese and wins more awards than any other state or country. Our heritage and traditions 
master cheesemaker program, and the American propensity for innovation all put Wisconsin on the cutting wedge of cheesemaking. With over 600 varieties of cheese to choose from and 5,500 national and international awards and counting, get ready to turn your refrigerator into a trophy case. Enjoying a Wisconsin cheese is basically like winning a gold medal in culinary achievement. Set your mind at cheese. When you bite into a wedge of Wisconsin Wonderful, you know it is made with the ultimate skill and passion possible. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. It's our 15th year on Heritage Radio Network. Support us, become a member, heritageradionetwork.org. So I'm here with Matt Steinberg of Exhibit A Brewing and Max Tosta of Deep Ellum at the new location in Waltham outside of Boston. Thanks for joining me, guys. So, Matt, you're, you're pouring us the second beer. Yeah, so this is a Saturday Scotch Ale. Um, it's got a long sentence, but it, we're going to need you to come in on Saturday. But like I said, we call it Saturday Scotch. We do obviously have the uh, uh, Sunday paper stout as well. So we thought it would be fun to just name it, use the weekend. Um, we wanted to make – there's not there's no Scotch Ale-type beers in 16-ounce cans. <laughs> that I know of besides maybe some of the, you know, Scottish stuff. Yeah. And it's usually like, you know, like there's like Bellhaven and things like that. I don't even know if you can get those beers anymore, um, but certainly not in an 8% plus range generally. Um, we thought it would be fun. Uh, Kelsey Roth, who is our former GM and label designer, uh, came up with this label and I, I just don't have the heart to ever get rid of it. It's, it's great. Um, you know, who knows what, in, what the future will hold, but uh, we decided this year we'd make a couple batches of this beer um, and, uh, it's, it's a fun one. We've, we mess with it a little bit. We put it on nitro actually in the, in the tap room, which was kind of fun, softens it up a little bit, gives it that nice creaminess and, uh, people dug that a lot. Um, so yeah, it's a fun beer, eight and a half percent. Like I said, it's got, um, uh, in the old days when I, I make it, I've made this beer for five years and the old days, long, long, many days ago, five years ago, we, uh, <laughs> we brewed this with, um, uh, Valley malts like house smoked grain. Um, they don't smoke malts anymore um, for various reasons, growth, and just no, there's no reason for it. <laughs> uh, so now it's, um, we just use a, uh, a, you know, the Bamberg, you know, classic German, good, but just a little bit. And then we use some peat in there as well. Um, and it's just like a fun kind of version of what a Scotch ale might be if it was made in a modern brewery. Um I like the idea, like my favorite of this style is, is, you know, like what Will's done over the years with his scotch, scotch ales and, you know, barley wines, that high level, high alcohol malt forward beers. Uh, We like to have at least three or four during the winter months. Um, You know, the world is so hot heavy right now um, that it's just really nice to be able to have like five or six malt forward beers uh, to choose from in our tap room of, of 10 beers too. It's not like there's, 15 or 16 beers and there's five darks you know it's it's half the beer is malt forward or dark beer um right now which is awesome you know so that's it's a, it, that's really part of our goal with our portfolio is always to have um not just a wide variety but a very intentional set of category you know categorized um beers within the portfolio that fit the way we like them to fit <laughs> 
Yeah, no, this is great. I was lucky two years ago. I, I went out to your brewery and you tasted me through a, a, a lot of them. Um, th this one, uh, the Scotch Ale, th there's like a little heat coming off the nose. It's, it's fresh. Um, I don't remember when this was canned, but, uh, the, you know, it's funny. Like we, you know, Max mentioned the sort of softness and the, the, how the malt, um, yeah, my eyes can't see that, but how the malt in the, uh, in the right to farm, uh, has, it sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, softens the heat of the alcohol a little bit. It hides it, um, which is nice. Um, this beer does come off a little hotter to me too. Um, not so much in the nose, but actually more the finish where it's just, you're just kind of like with it. It comes off with spice though. It doesn't come off like, I, I, I kind of like it. Yeah, yeah, it's like the pepperiness. This was, this was canned 12-12-23, so yeah, yeah. I mean, six weeks ago, not even. It has, uh, it has time to settle. <laughs> um, but it's, it's doing really well, actually, for us in that category in the market. Um, there's certain people that just come to our tap room or, like, when it's on, they drink it, you know? And that's just what they choose to drink. Um, it's nice to see people... You asked about, you know, exciting or sexy ingredients, like style-wise, too. Um, IPA has owned that for, like, you know, two, half my career or three-quarters of my career of 20, some 25 years. And so it's really nice to see people, their eyes light up. And when there's, like, a barley wine or a scotch ale, you're like, whoa, I love this, you know. And, uh, you know, you ta you, 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 but you, if you look at Instagram, it's all double IPAs that are you know getting getting the attention or getting the likes or whatever um it's really exciting to see that there actually is this you know lager thing happening and uh and malt, malt forward beer malt, malt forward excitement too and, and matt you also have some really great double ipas too sure yeah we make some good hoppy beers too absolutely i mean the leader in our portfolio is the cat's meow and it's half our business and uh, thank God for that. <laughs> you know, it's um, it's a classic. What what you know, uh, new school, you know, hazy IPA. Um, a little more bitter than what you'd find in most of that style. Uh, I like bitterness. We we put IBUs in the beer. We like them. <laughs> it's, interesting. it's interesting what you said, Matt, about having like dark, dark multi beers on in their portfolio because. This Scotch Ale, which is kind of like a wee heavy, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And versus the the Doppelbach, they're super, super different. I mean, they so like yeah, they're. I mean, this isn't as dark as the Doppelbach, but it's this almost the same alcohol content, like, almost exactly, right? Yeah, it's off by like a third or something. Yeah. So it's eight. This is eight four. The Doppelbach was eight seven. <laughs> and um. They drink super different. I, I, I really like I really like that wee heavy scotch ale kind of thing because it reminds me of when I first started drinking beers that were supposed to be good. You know, in the mid nineties. They were like malt forward. I was like in Rhode Island. I wouldn't even live here yet. Yeah. And it was uh you know, it was like Belgian beers or like the classic, you know, wee heavies or these styles that are they're you know be, it's like the goofy hidden secret that beer is actually mostly made of malt and hops are not the main ingredient of beer. So when you actually drink something and it tastes like malt, 
that's what it's supposed to taste like because it's mostly what it's made out of. Yeah. It's like people who don't eat their crust for their pizza. It's like, what's wrong with you? Ugh. Anyway, <laughs> but this, um, but this, this drinks beautifully and it's so, I love this style because it, it has nothing to do with hops. It's all about like malt worship. And this is really, really well attenuated. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's really sweet. It's funny because when you, you're talking like eight and a half percent malt forward, but it's not cloying. And that's the real kicker. And you know, it finishes like in the fives, Play Doh. Like, that's wicked low. It's for eight and a half for a big beer that's, yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, well, that's proper. Yeah. I mean, we have an 8% double IPA that finishes like, like high threes, you know, low, low So it's like, that's cool. It's, it's, which, you know, which is also not overly attenuated either, which is nice in the term of, you know, but for a beer like this, we don't want it to be overly sweet. You know? No, it's beautiful. Like, yeah. the character is great. We're having a great time here at uh, Deep Ellum and, um, we're just getting into the conversations that you, you love to have when you're out with some industry professionals. Um, but, um, you know, the Scotch Ale is, uh, these are great styles. And I want you guys to keep talking. We'll talk a little more and we'll, we'll wrap it up soon, okay? You want to talk about the next beer that you have? Sure. I mean, I brought some briefcase porter. It's part of, part of our port, uh, corp, uh, excuse me, it's part of our core portfolio. Uh, we brew it year round. Uh, I call it, Kelsey actually came up with the, the name briefcase and, and I was like, why? He's like, because you have to have it. And it's not just that you have to have the beer. It has to be in our portfolio. It has to be available year round. I want people drinking this beer in the summer and in the winter. And when the summer it's cold and the winter it's, you know, 52 degrees after it dumps like a bunch of snow and the lake freezes over. And then it's warm the next day. Let's drink some porter. It's fine. And uh, the, the thing about each one of our beers is kind of, when, from an ingredient standpoint, there's a very intentional uh, reason that the ingredient is in there. We, we're using it for a particular purpose in the beer, of course. Um, should I? Yeah. Um, and uh, in this beer, when we first opened, my first order of malt, I brought in some beautiful English, you know, British Simpsons malt. The, you know, great. Uh, the Simpsons family has been malt house for a couple hundred years. Uh, they make amazing world-class malt. Um, and uh, I got the bags of the chocolate malt and the roasted barley and all these goodies for, to make our batch of porter, which actually was called Demo Tape 5. And uh, all the malt was like a year, a year old or older coming from the supplier. And I'm like, okay. So I call them. I'm like, hey, like these are a little old. They're like, yeah, it's pretty typical of the, of the roasted grains because we only get them a couple times a year and get a big truckload, whatever, a big trailer load. And I'm like, all right. And I've been brewing at this point for 15 plus years. I'm like, oh, I guess I never really considered that being an issue. So I called up Andrea and Christian at Valley Mall and I'm like, yo, let's roast some grains. I want, this is what I want. Let's, we did taste, we did, we did, uh, you know, we did um, hot, hot steeps to taste all of the malt properly and get, figure out what the aromas were coming like. We had all of the, you know, the, the, the characteristics that we were looking for, but also the specs of which these grains should land. And they were roasting grain by hand at that point in like a you know outdoor you know makeshift coffee roaster basically. They later invested in a much larger uh, coffee roaster, but like a full pro awesome setup, making like forty pounds at a time. And uh, we, after I'd say a couple of batches, a couple of months, 
Um, we really started to nail down where we wanted these, these, these roast levels to be, both not just temperature, but time. So like lower temperature, longer on this. Okay, next batch, higher temperature, a little shorter. And like, just, just to figure out like, just because something is 200 Levabond, which is how it's, the color is uh, measured, may not taste the same at 200 Levabond if it's cooked hotter and for a shorter amount of time, right? So we, we found the sweet spot. And this beer is built around that process and that exploration. And uh, I feel like after brewing it for like the last, I'd say five and a half years, it's been real consistent. But the first few years, it was like we were shooting for it. Like we kept aiming, right? And uh, now when we get that, we call it coffee brown malt or whatever we call the brown malt. Uh, sometimes it's called coffee and sometimes it's called brown, but it's always the same. Uh, just on the invoice, I mean. Um, but it's <laughs> it's brown malt. Uh, and then we use a, uh, a chocolate wheat and we use a, uh, you know, like uh, barley, flaked barley, uh, pale flaked raw barley, and uh, among other things. And that those three things are what are giving you that color and that body. Um, which I think is what nails the beer for us. And um, to me, it's like an everyday kind of porter drinking beer. Um, people are like, what's your, you know, give me your, your, your lightest. And if it's the portfolio, we have Kolsch there. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I don't think you're asking for the right thing. What's the most drinkable? Is that what you're asking me? Like, what's the one that's going to satisfy the most? Boom, here's a briefcase. And then start there. If you're not into the dark beers, either I'm going to convince you that you're wrong and you do actually like them, or you're going to decide you don't like them in that moment because you're trying it and you're like, I don't like this. And then you go to the Kolsch and you're psyched, you know? You know what I feel like where our consumer and our industry base is, it's kind of like where wine was in America, where at one point people were drinking intro wines, white wines, and and sometime it was like the the early 90s, red wine took off. Do, Do you feel like there's a parallel for what, darker colored beers could be in the States? Um, well, <clears throat> I almost kind of think it's reverse of that. I think that there's, because pale, the pale fizzy lager was this, the, the, you know, that was what American beer was. And if you liked good beer, quote unquote, good beer was dark beer in the nineties and the 30, you know, 30 years ago, you know, it was, it was a, a bass ale or it was a, a double diamond or it was like a, some like English amber something, or it was a dark Belgian beer, you know? And then, then the good beers became the IPAs at proliferation. So now dark beers, they're almost like old fashioned to some people, but they're, because like, you know, the beer scene is like, it's like exponentially cyclical, like dark beers and lagers coming back, even though they were like just here, they're sort of like back again. Uh, I think it's just really, this has a lot to do with, you know, when you're talking about what demographic, are you talking about Instagram, talking about influencers, you're talking about like beer advocate rate beer or actually what consumers drink and buy. Because what consumers drink and buy is kind of all over the place. Like, yeah, it's pretty IPA heavy, but the alternate styles, they also sell really well because there's a lot of people who don't want to drink IPAs. 
but if you look at the boards or the you know whatever in, whatever influencers whatever like you say like the ipas get all the awards and get all the attention but like, to matt's point when he was talking about his tasting room if half of his beers are these other styles darker or stronger or, or both you know you wouldn't do that if they weren't selling yeah probably right absolutely i mean our tap room does not actually land the same as our wholesale business yeah. at all um because we sell a lot of lager and we sell a lot of Kolsch and we sell a lot of, I mean, Kolsch was our number one unit item for the first three or four years we were in the tap, or three years in the tap room, number one unit item. Now it was a, you know, 300 mil Stanga at four bucks. <laughs> so it wasn't the highest, it was, you know, great profit in that class, but you can not. You drink like 15 of those. You can drink a bunch. That's just, which could explain that too. <laughs> There's also the volume angle, which. Right. No, but, but, it, but it definitely like made for a, statement that when we you know when we opened we did not try to be or consider ourselves a uh, an ipa brewery on any level uh, which was exciting at the time because it was like right in the thick of you know uh breweries really participating in that world and and basically making 10 beers a year and eight of them are ipas and two of them are stouts you know or whatever you know and that's I, I was thinking about your question, Jimmy, about like the American palate and its correlation with wine. And I think it is, you're, you're right that there is a correlation, there's a connection. It's trickier because with, with in a very simple world, there's light beer, colored beer and dark beer. And in a very simple world, there's light wine and dark and red wine, I guess, or white, white wine and red wine. But as soon as you start getting into any of it, even a little bit, it is so much more nuanced and it doesn't like, I, I, I mean, there's old world versus new world. There's, I mean, it's just like endless variation. So I think the real thing is American, the general consumer, especially American, but general consumer understanding of beer in general is pretty, you know, it, it's like there's still the people who are enthusiastic about things they're, they don't necessarily understand like the history of it because the craft American, the American craft brewing scene has become so much about like what's new and what's different and what's hot as opposed to what's necessarily good. And the idea of like older established styles being like out of style, you know, like, like pastry stouts are really popular and I don't understand why anybody would want to drink that shit. And people come in and they're like, I want a sour beer. What's the most sour? Like, what do you mean most sour? Like, you get an award for being sour? Like, you want a glass of pickle juice? What the fuck's wrong with you? And, like, a beer that's the most hazy. And it's, like, this weird quantification of things that don't actually, the things that aren't what makes something good. Like, if it's more sour, that's not necessarily good. If it's more hazy, that's not good. If it's got more booze, like, that's not necessarily good. Like... So there's just like a misunderstanding. But I mean, if you come in and you're looking at a beer list, uh, you know, my sister-in-law, she orders beer, like whatever's the highest ABV versus the dollar amount. Okay. That's, That's cool. <laughs> That's for your buck. That's cool. That's not how I order beer. I order like a, a good buddy of mine was, has this great expression. He was saying like when we were young, we used to spend as little as we could on as much food as we could. 
And now that we're older, we spend as much as we can on as little food as we can. <laughs> and it's so true, too. It's so it fucking is. true. So, like, you know, there's sort of a, like, a, again, like, I don't want to come off, like, snooty or, like, if you don't know it, you don't understand. But it's really, like, it's on our, it's on our, on, it's on us as publicans and, like, en- enthusiasts of this stuff to turn people on to, like, what it is they really like. It's like the guy who comes in to order a cocktail and says, do you have Jack and Coke? And I say, I don't sell Jack Daniels. And he goes, okay, I'll take a Bacardi and, and Sprite. Uh, I, don't, I don't have Bacardi. Okay, I'll have a Captain and Coke. I'm like, what do you actually want to drink? Yeah, do you so want That's you a really good a point. Name? You were saying, I, I love that reference. Because, and I'll tell you why. Because when you were talking about what do you have, have that's the most sour? What do you have that's the most hazy? What people used to ask, and this used to happen to us at, in brew pubs when I was at John Harvard's, it happened all the time. What do you have that's like A? And they wouldn't say what's the haze, the clearest or the hoppiest or the least hoppy or the lightest. What they would say is, what do you have that's like a Sam Adams? What do you have that's like a Sierra Nevada? Um, what do you have that's like a Guinness? Or what do you have that's like a Bud Light? Like those were what they, they, they didn't ask for what it smelled or looked or tasted like. They asked, they asked for a brand, which is what you're saying booze drinkers may still do. And that's, I think, I mean, that's marketing prowess and for beer, sure. And beer drinkers do that too. I'm sure beer yeah, drinkers yeah. do it's, and it's do, very, they do it to us too. So yeah. I think that there's, a, and there's now both, right? So we, we have this, um, and, and like to the, to the sort of comparative to the wine point, and I'm, I'm certainly not a wine person. I do love wine for uh, the history and the culture of it and the farming part of it. Um, there's some really amazing stuff happening in that world um, that I'm completely unaware of, you know, even. Um, but I like the fact that we now have the opportunity to be treated as such. Like there's breweries and beer enthusiasts that are just as knowledgeable, um, you know, the true and educated ones that really know what they're talking about and and and, uh, and are authentic with their with their approach um, in the wine world too. And there's, you know, there's, there's, there's egos and snootiness and all that in both. But I think that there's a sweet little pocket of individuals. Like there's a couple of breweries that I really love. And every time I've gone to their places or drunk or consume their beers with other people of, of palates that have great palates, it's, there's a consensus that's very clear and obvious, which is this place is, really great for these several reasons um liquid aside even sometimes where it's like i want to see how you did that and what your intention was because it's amazing um suarez certainly a great example um brian up at sacred profane i mean talk about intentional beers um chris has been doing it at notch for you know forever um but i do think that there's i'd like to believe there's more of that um, and there's room for more of that, clearly, because I, we're seeing this, the beer industry is in a really strange place. Um, we're, we're seeing wild uh, mergers of breweries that you never thought would merge and closures for breweries that you thought would be around forever and, uh, and changes in how that works and places making beer for other places and whatever. Um, that's this, we are at the tiny little bottom of that mountain right now. And we're gonna see a big, shift in how consumers are uh how we how they see these companies and how they see these brands and what happens to that liquid is yet to be determined you know the one thing i want to say since you mentioned that we're going to wrap it up soon but when i think about breweries closing 
or any business, when you look back even at the, the name of your phone company or your phone carrier, I, I can't really think of too many businesses that, that I know that have lasted more than 20 years. And, and it's very rare to see a business go to the next generation. Um, so I, I don't know what our expectations are for you know, brands to continue. Um, I don't know. I, I, I feel like there's, there's, there's always the, the, the new thing on the block. And if you, if you can survive that 20 years, it's amazing. I don't have much to say about it, but, but I, I, I think about it sometimes and look, look for answers from you guys. I mean, if you look at the top 100 or top 50 breweries in, the, in America, most of them have been around for kind of that whole time. You know, there's some that are on that list that are younger, certainly like the, the ones locally that, that, that are, you know, very popular. Some of those breweries are on those lists. But if you look at that core list of like, you know, the, the, the Sierras, the, the uh, Stone Brewing is a good example. They've, they've been around forever. They're a ch- very changed company, though, you know, not even owned by the same people, I don't think, anymore. Um, and, uh, you know, but then, you know, like Russian River, you know, I mean, I don't know how long, I think they've probably been around 25 years, um, but have stuck to their thing and have done it in an exceptional way that is unmatched. Right. Um, but then you have like what, six or 7,000 other breweries in this country that are all over the map. And there's so many young companies that start that are undercapitalized and undereducated and don't have the wherewithal to actually really function as a professional brewery and they fizzle, they don't last. And there's just a constant rotation of that. I mean, there's how many breweries a year close versus open is right now probably going on the other balance. It's probably more closing than opening. Uh, certainly if you count the mergers too, that might be, that might be true. I don't know that data in my head, but I know it's really unbalanced right now. And uh, I think that we, we have a lot of work to do in order to make sure that we keep quality high and like, you know, I mean, what Sam Adams turns 40 this year, right? Uh, Matt, what about you? Exhibit A, will, will you still be here in 20 years? We're in our eighth year. Will we be around 20 years? Um, I, 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 I would like to believe that. I don't know. I mean, I, I think for us, um, I, I may want to retire before then. <laughs> I don't know. In 12 years? No, I'm not going to retire in 12 years. What am I talking about? Um, I will be well into my mid-60s, though. I should probably want to retire by then. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't have any fantasies of retiring. The restaurant <laughs> business isn't is tricky that you way. You can't really retire. It's hard, yeah. Business. I mean, it's interesting what you say, Jimmy. The longevity of businesses is that mystery that everybody who goes into business is trying to figure out, right? And there's so many variables. I mean, A, there's different kinds of business you're involved in. You know, if you're, if you, you know, you were like the best fax machine company and then all of a sudden no one uses a fax machine, like, okay, that explains the end. So there's like technological things that can interfere. But the bottom line of, the only thing I do know is small businesses require a lot of energy, like personal energy and, and like stamina to keep going and a lot of enthusiasm. And that's where... I feel like we're very lucky here. You know, my business partner and I have a lot of energy. And we really love this business. And we've also have like really different skill sets. And I think when you combine small business, uh, or when you talk about small business, and it's usually a combination of creative mind and enough business savvy to make it work. 
when you're talking about longevity, anyway. And I think Aaron and I are very lucky because together we have a really good combination of business savvy and creative energy and just like desire and sort of tenacity. And that's kind of where, you know, we're, we're almost 20 years going, uh, the two of us as business partners. We've worked together for more than 20 years, but actually being in business is nearly 20 years, 18 years now. And we have no intention of, you know, we just signed a 20-year lease two years ago uh, in Portland. So we have no desire to stop doing that. You know, phasing out day-to-day operations when I get older might be nice, but I'm never going to not like to eat and drink. So I'm, a luck- I'm in a lucky business, you know. Um, my tastes change and things I get excited about change. But combining the, our energy and our experience with the experience and the energy of our young staff and young management kind of helps revitalize things and keep things going. And also, like, when you have new generations of staff working with us, what they bring to the table is always different. So letting people play to their strengths and using those differences to strengthen what we're doing all within the same vision is, like, basically, like, my full-time job. Like, that's essentially what I'm doing all the time is trying to kind of make the stuff the awesomest and the most tasty with reverence to what's gone before, we've done before, influence of what people like, uh, awareness of, like, the numbers and demographic and all the, you know, boring stuff, and also what is my staff interested in selling? Like, what are they going to be excited about so that... The guests come in and they get a they they can feel the excitement and they can feel the positivity that translates into hospitality to help keep this ball rolling, right? And like you don't want to change your business, but you gotta evolve. And that's a real trick. It's like how to evolve without turning off people who like what you've been doing. You know, so I don't I don't know what longevity of every business work is like, but I know small business takes a lot of energy and a lot of work. Um, but like I was saying before about those ecosystems of all of our collective small businesses, that's what really like is exciting to me. Like big corporations, I don't fucking care about. And like little niche movements, okay, whatever. But when you have a collection of people trying to do awesome stuff, like Matt was saying, like the wine world, I actually am very interested in wine. I do I drink a lot of wine in my, my own time. My wife's quite knowledgeable about it. And that's what we drink at home. And I really get into what's going on with farming and styles and reverence to the old stuff and new exciting shit. Um, but that, the long and short of it is the recipe for business longevity is the thing that everybody's trying to figure out. Corporations and small businesses alike. Like, how do I keep this going? I mean, you mentioned, like, you know, like the young generation under you that's, that's really running your business. Um, and making your business what it is. I mean, I have two people out of my five or six production staff that have worked in breweries before. I have a former commercial baker that worked for Neshoba, like worked for a very cool, local, small, but kind of large bakery, um, running our equipment. You know, like, he's not a brewer. He's a beer guy. Loves beer. Frank. Frank Cannon. He's, he's great. And he's... He's running our entire logistics and and uh, and uh, packaging program, where he's in charge of everything from the time it's in the bright tank till the time it leaves the 
the dock and he handles all of the invoicing and, and POs and all the stuff. Right. And so what that's allowed us as a business is to let them flourish in the things they're really good at. Kyle, our production manager has his small crew of seller people and brewers that he's trained. I haven't had to train them because he knows what I need from him to give to them. Right. And so it's given us as a company, the opportunity to allow the, the kind of younger generation, if you will, um, and less experienced to build it and to, well, to, I should say, take hold of it and help it continue to grow as just a, production facility not even necessarily as a business but better beer more efficient um uh less less time on the floor all the ways to like improve the bottom line in the end but really it's about improving their quality of life while they're there doing the thing so they can go home and enjoy their wine or beer or whatever they're doing enjoy some food and they're all consumers in that way where they care about eating and drinking better things uh, we talk a lot about that at work. Like, what are you eating tonight? What, what, what do you got there for lunch? That looks great. Those LOs look great. And like, you know, he's got some homemade tortellinis. And I'm like, wow, what, you made tortellinis last night? Like, you know, like, yeah, made the dough too, you know, whatever. And so we, it doesn't stop at just throwing malt and water and hops together. It's, I think that's part of the lifestyle, certainly of being in hospitality too, where yeah, you kind of need to care about it a lot and have that energy to back it up or you're just doomed. You're just going to be buried in the headaches of running a restaurant otherwise. It's so funny you say lifestyle because that is exactly the correct word to describe it. But I, because it actually is my lifestyle, I don't associate it with life a lifestyle. <laughs> it's just life. <laughs> but when you said lifestyle, I'm like, oh, no, that's the perfect word for it. It's lifestyle. But I don't really, I don't, I'm like, how do I describe my entire life? <laughs> oh, right, lifestyle. <laughs> It's true. It's true. Uh, you guys are awesome. I don't want to cut this off because this is the kind of post-show chatter that we usually don't get to record. But um, this is a pretty good show. Thanks for having me, Max. And Matt, thanks for coming out to Waltham, Massachusetts. Did a great job. Last thing, if, if you got to come here to the location, Deep Allen, Moody Street, and Waltham. It's a beautiful bar. The proportions actually really work. Um, I, I, how would you describe this, this bar to people that never been here? But they may know of Deep Ellum. I can give you a guest perspective. Um, it's super welcoming. When I first walked in, bartender looked me straight in the face and welcomed me. Thought, you know, I'm glad you're here. Felt like, you know, she thought I, she, she was glad I was here. Um, I know that I have friends that come here that live in the area, love the place. Um, I think the, the combination of high quality and um, I would say uh, intentional service it's, you know, not, it's not supposed to be fancy. Stools aren't ex exceptionally comfortable, um, but they're appropriate. Um, and I will say there is something really amazing about sitting at such an old bar that you don't really, even if you don't know it's an old bar, you're, you're, you know, your body knows, your, your psyche knows. Um, and I kind of love that about, certain, like, you know, Dalton Street had that, you know, and uh, that's Bukowski, the original Bukowski. Um, certainly, you know, Deep felt like that because you built that bar intentionally to feel like that. But I didn't know. I had no idea that, you know. I'm going to close on that note. You talk about intentional built bars. Check out um, Pete Brown's book, A Craft. He wrote it during the pandemic. 
It was about a wheelwright and, and how they just knew the feel of something. And I do feel like, Max, that the guys that made this bar way back when had the feel for what a bar was supposed to be like. Right, Matt? Yeah, it feels like a bar in here. I mean, like I said, when we walked in and saw the space, we were just like, oh, yeah. feels just like Deep Ellum. It felt cozy. It's funny. I was managing the other night, and it was time for I was, you know, I'd been here all day, and it was time for me to go home. But I was looking at the bar, and all I wanted to do was sit down and drink at that bar. My, my own, our own bar, right? And... I texted my wife and I was like, man, all I want to do is sit here and like have a bunch of drinks, but I really got to go home. She's like, well, why don't you have one drink and then go home? I'm like, that's a great idea. So I sat down and I had one drink and I said, this is a good bar. And then I got the hell out of here because I had stuff to do the next day. But man, it was like, I don't, I don't mean to sound like an alcoholic, but cause I'm just an enthusiast. That's what I used to say. But this is a good bar to sit and drink at. That's my favorite kind of bar. I don't think there's anything in the way of that. It, there's, you know, quite frankly, there's nothing else to do but to eat and drink and talk with your, your, you know, your friends. And that's what makes a bar special. I mean, there's really, you don't need all the TVs and the live music and the music and, and you know, a jukebox or video games or any of that stuff. I think um, when you have the, you know, and obviously, like, the key is the people, that fill the room, right? And a place like this is going to get that clientele, you know? It's not going to be like everyone sitting there not talking to each other. In fact, when I was here a month ago, before any of my crew showed up, I was sitting at the bar before you came out. And a gentleman sitting at the bar, we just struck up a conversation. And uh, he was here alone. He was reading a book. And, uh, and I'm like, what are you reading? And I had no idea what he was reading, even when he told me, <laughs> you know. And uh, and I just love that. I like, and I, for the last couple of years, I've actually gone to bars solo a bunch, um, JM Curly a bit. Um, I was going there a lot, um, and in uh, other bars in the Boston area, in 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 the, in the Back Bay area, and um, and I felt so cozy at home when I'd be there by myself because I felt like people were talking to me, you know, and I could talk to them. You guys are awesome. We're going to close it out one more time. You guys say your names and, and where you work and where, where, where locations are. Uh, so my name is Max Toasty, and uh, I'm uh, one of the owners, partner of Deep Ellum here in Waltham. And also we have uh, Lone Star Taco Bar in Cambridge and also in Alston. And our sister restaurant up in uh, Portland, Maine called Lenora. That's our little mini empire. My name's Matthew Steinberg. I've been a professional brewer here in Massachusetts for over 25 years, which feels strange to say, um, but oddly true. Uh, and my brewery is called Exhibit A Brewing. We're in Framingham. We have a tap room with live music every Friday. We got comedy shows. Uh, in fact, next weekend, we got Kevin Lamore coming with his shakies. Um, and, uh, and, and, and we've got a great setup there, and we can, you can find our beer and. Uh, all over Massachusetts, as well as other states in New England, except for Connecticut. And we're in New York, we're in Virginia, we're in Japan. And you can order our beer direct to your house uh, through Liquid Rails. Guys, thanks so much for joining me, Matt and Max, on Heritage Radio Network. Big shout out to our engineer, Armin Spengen, who's going to clean this up. I'm Jimmy Carboni. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Thanks so much. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. 
keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.